Well, I'm glad to be back. Uh, contrary to popular belief, I was not on vacation. I was also not in Washington. Some people were like, how's Washington? I'm like, I have no idea. I actually have uh, Corona. Uh, they're, 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 I don't know what to call it. It's Corona, COVID, Wuhan, Chinese virus. I mean, it, it goes on and on. Either way, uh, I had it. It was confirmed I had it. I'm over it. I've been cleared. And, and I just want to share something with you. Yeah. I want to share something. Thank you very, very much for your concern. I mean, so many of you. And for those that didn't reach out, I'll pray for you. <laughs> now I know where I stand. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, but it, it definitely makes you feel good. And healing is not just about the physical. Healing is about the emotional and spiritual. So thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your, for your care and concern. I do appreciate that. But I want to encourage you. You don't have to be fearful. Now, I'm not here denying the virus. I'm not a denier. I'm not one that says, oh, there's no effects. It's all a big hoax. I do believe things have been exaggerated for different reasons. Now, we don't have to go into that. But I will say, I mean, yeah, we, we live in a fallen world. But, but what I really want to get across to you is this. You, you don't have to be fearful. The Bible says very clearly, God did not give us a spirit of fear. But of what? Power, love, and of a sound mind. Meaning, gird yourself up in faith. You know, there's something that I, I, um, I said before I got it. I stood up here and I said something similar. Then I got it and I go, oh, Lord. I said, I'm not afraid to die. And, then, and, then, and, and, you, and you have to really get to the point where you say, I mean, think about this with me for a second. There's more things that can take me out than just the virus. Have you seen 71 lately? Have, have you not, uh, I mean, we live in a world where we, we have to depend on God's goodness. You have to depend on God's goodness. And that's what I want to encourage you with. Yes, wash your hands, wear the mask if you feel that that is necessary. Do what you think is necessary, but refuse to live in fear. Let God's love wash over you. Be encouraged in his goodness. Know that God has good plans for you declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Cry out to him if you feel, fear, fear, feel fearful. But more importantly, understand that this virus and many things in this earth are designed to strike fear in your heart to remove you from God's love. Don't let that happen. Amen? All right. So uh, I do want to encourage you in that. Uh, uh, I also want you to know that, man, we have some real talent in this church. Raquel did an outstanding job, did she not? Brother Jamie, oh my goodness. I'm gonna call him, not brother, Pastor Jamie, I think. We also have Brady, Webster, and many others that could fill this platform, fill this pulpit. We have a blessed house. You know what, that, that doesn't, that kind of played on me. Because I'm like, Lord, you don't need me. No, seriously, guys. That, that, yeah, Lord, you don't need me. 
You want me. Isn't that better to be loved than needed? Yeah, I love, you know, and it's a good realization, Lord. You don't need any of us. You love us, God, and you choose us, Lord. How many of you know God chose you? We're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about, and, I, and I've, got a, I've got an ambitious message, so I'm going to need your prayers. I've got 30 minutes to complete this ambitious message. We're going to go through the entire Old Testament. We're going to go through the entire Old Testament and land firmly on the life of Jesus. Yes, let's do this. So, so the Old Testament starts off in the book of Genesis. Now think about the word Genesis. What does it mean? It's a Hebrew word that literally means what? Beginning or creation, the start of things. The beginning. And so we're going to start at the very beginning. And God creates life. The Bible says that the earth was without form. What does that mean? It means it was void. It was chaos. It lends itself to, 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 to thinking of things were dark and completely in disorder and not a good not a good situation. I don't know about you, but many believe that that is the place where the enemy was cast and that's why it was like that. But God steps into that chaos, into that disorder, into that void and he creates something beautiful out of it. He creates a beautiful paradise in a garden that he calls Eden and then he places man in the middle. And as he's creating, we know it's good because not one time or two or five or six, but seven times God declares over his handiwork, it is good. And so we know that it's blessed and we know that he creates man with his own hands and he breathes the breath of life into man. And the very first man was Adam, Adam, which literally means what? Mankind, humanity. Humanity. And then we have Eve, the very first woman. And her name literally means what? Life. So you have mankind life or human life. Human life. And the Bible says that God created both Adam and Eve in his image. He literally says that. Let us create him in our image. He's speaking as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three in one, designing and, and creating this beautiful pinnacle of his creation, and that is mankind. And he says, we will create him in our image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. And so this is a beautiful thing because we are called to represent God's image in the earth. And he says, I want you to rule the earth. I want you to represent me as you rule the earth. I want you to take my kindness, my goodness, my attributes, and I want you to multiply them in the earth as you realize all of this beautiful potential that lays dormant and laden in the earth that I have prepared specifically for you to unlock. And so you have this beautiful creation. You have mankind representing him as image bearers, reflecting God's goodness upon the earth and, and, and filling the earth as we rule. And so, so watch this. God literally says, 
You are mine and I have blessed you so that you might bless others. Now this quickly goes awry because Adam and Eve are tempted and they were tempted because of the opportunity for temptation which existed in that God created them to have a relationship with him. And in order to have a relationship, there must be choice. And so God gives them a choice to either follow him or follow their own ways. And this is interesting because this is what Solomon kind of sums up the human condition when he says what? Trust not in your own understanding, right? But in all your ways, acknowledge who? God, and he will direct your path. And so God is saying, choose me. Reflect my goodness. Let me be your, your father. Be my children. Carry my image and reflect my goodness upon the earth. But they chose their own reasoning. And at that point, something changed. There was a fall. There was a break in relationship. In relationship that broke, they were never the same again. And all of a sudden, they were naked. They realized they were naked. And God asks them a very important question. Who told you these things? Where did you get that notion? How did you get that idea? And in fact, it's because they relied on their own understanding and not on God's. They chose to walk in fear instead of faith. And so what do you mean they chose to walk in fear? Isn't that what the whole temptation was about? God's missing out. God's holding back on you. You're missing out. And that fear crept in and said, I must take hold of my own destiny instead of trusting God. And so it's not long before mankind spirals downward. I mean, think about this. First generation, they have Abel and Cain and Abel and Cain kills Abel. And then a few generations later, there's a man by the name of Lamech. And Lamech is, is known for having multiple wives and being harsh to them and mistreating them and killing and hurting and bragging about how he is way more evil than Cain was. And so you see this spiral downward, and by chapter 6, God regrets having created man. Think about this. Six chapters in, and we're at the point where man has hit rock bottom, and God says, I regret. And you say, well, how can God regret if he doesn't make mistakes? The Bible is indicating God has emotions, and his emotion is, I am sad. That man has reached such a desperate point. And so he decides to flood the earth and, and wipe out mankind and begin again with one family, Noah's family, because the Bible says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so many times when we look at the, at the uh, uh, flood story, we think of it as God being angry. Come on. God being angry and he's fed up and he's had it and he's wiping everybody out. But what if you're seeing God's loving nature saying, I cannot bear to see man hurt themselves the way they are and live in such depravity in my grace. I will wipe it clean and give them a fresh start. Do you know God is about fresh starts? 
And so he gives Noah a fresh start and he makes his first covenant. And so the Old Testament is marked by four distinct major covenants. You say, what's a covenant? Someone said a covenant is like a contract. No, a contract is a business arrangement. A covenant is far more than that. A covenant is an act of love and relationship. And so covenant says, I promise to love and honor. Kind of sounds like marriage, doesn't it? And so God says, I promise to love you and honor you and protect you if you would commit to honoring me and following after me. And so this is the covenant he makes with with, uh, Noah. And you have different parts of a covenant. You have God the person he's covenanting with or the entity. And then you have the actual covenant, the agreement, that, that, that loving promise, which includes a promise and commitments. So God promises and Noah commits. What, what, where, where do we find this, Pastor? Chapter 9 of Genesis says, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Isn't that exactly what he had said to Adam and Eve? And he's starting over. It's a new beginning. Now he says, be fruitful, multiply. I will bless you. And through the blessing that I give you, you will spread it to all of mankind because I want to see an earth filled with goodness. With goodness. Now two chapters in, now notice, notice the, the second part. He talks about whoever sheds man's blood by uh, man, his blood shall be shed for in the image of God, he made man. There's that idea of being image bearers. But not only that, he's telling Moses, he, I mean Noah here, he's saying, I want you to value life. Life is important to me and I want it to be important to you. Can I get an Amen. And so he says, fill the earth. I want to see life all over the earth. Don't believe the hype when they say our earth is overpopulated. It's not that it's overpopulated. We just don't have enough faith and we're falling into the same old lie that we've always fallen into. Because two chapters later in chapter 11, you see something taking place. A tower and complete disobedience to the covenant he made with Noah And you see God's people gathered around to build this tower to the heavens and saying, we're not going to spread out. We're not going to fill the earth. We're not going to be fruitful and multiply. We're going to stay here. We're going to do what we want to do. And we want to enlighten ourselves and reach a point where we can be secure. Think about this. Read with me in the book of Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Now that doesn't sound selfish, does it? Let us make a name for ourselves. Least we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. We don't want to be scattered because if we're scattered, we feel more insecure. Why? Because we have to be dependent on God. We'd rather not be dependent on God. We'd rather make our own way. And so God comes down and says, this is not good. This is not what I asked. And he confuses their language there in Babylon. 
And he causes them to babble one to another and they don't understand each other and they have to spread out. And man has reached an all-time low again, but God decides to pick one line. And that's where a man by the name of Abram is introduced. And God says, through this man, I will make a covenant. I will make a holy relationship with, and I will raise him up to be a father of a great nation and many nations. And through him in his line, I will introduce ultimately a way for relationship back with me to bless the entire earth. Read with me the start of the covenant here with Abraham. It's found in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Now, the last chapter, we heard them trying to make their own name great. But God says, I will make your name great. Because that's all the message of God's word. Trust me. Let me do it for you. Let me advance you. Let my plan unfold for your life. Quit trying to do it in your own strength and quit fighting against me and doing your own thing out of insecurity, fear, and come on now. Jealousy and and, and all the other things that creep in. And so here you have a no name who God is going to give a great name to when the people that wanted a great name ended up with no name. And so God makes this covenant with Abraham and he literally says, I will bless, read that last line, and you and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's literally saying, through you, Abraham, I plan to bless the entire earth. Because mankind has fallen away and mankind has separated their relationship with me and they are in desperate need of relationship. And so through your family, I will reach all of the world. And he says something interesting in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, he says, and if you keep this covenant with me, Watch this. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does that mean? You see that same refrain in the, in the New Testament, in the writings of Peter, when he says the church is a what? A holy nation, a peculiar people, a holy priesthood. We are that promise. We are part of that promise. But we'll get to that later. Right now, stick with me in this. He's telling Abraham, through your people, I am going to what? Reflect my image upon you. And I will bless you so that you might bless others. And priests do what? They walk with the Lord and they explain the goodness of God to others that others might come into relationship with God. That's what a priest is supposed to do. But through the ages, God has always charged bad priests with this. You keep my people from me. And you don't reflect my goodness to them. Instead, you extort them. And so God is literally saying, I want a group of people that will introduce my love to the world. That's what he's saying. And so you have this covenant with Abraham. 
Well, let's read some more out of the book of Genesis chapter 15. He says, look toward the heaven, Abraham, and count the stars. Are you able to count them and number them? Well, such will be your descendants. And Abraham didn't how, but he said, I will trust you, Lord. And God said, I will what? Credit your account for righteousness because of your faith. That's what God's always wanted. Just trust me. Adam and Eve, trust me. Don't eat from that fruit. Trust me, Noah. Spread out throughout the earth. I know you're going to want to huddle, but I want to see my goodness and my image fill the earth. Fill the earth. And so here you have the promise that God gives to Abraham. Let's go over to Genesis chapter 17. I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. There's that word blameless. This will come up later because is it possible for Abraham to be blameless? No, it's not possible for him to be blameless. What it's possible is for him to be faithful. And because of your faithfulness, God credits you with righteousness. This is very, very significant because the Bible says without faith, you cannot know God and you cannot have relationship with God. And so God here is showing how to have relationship and covenant relationship with him. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. So this is what he asks Abraham to do. He says, as a sign of my covenant, I want you to take every male child and I want you to circumcise him. Maybe I shouldn't use my hands. I do. I I want you to circumcise him. On the eighth day, this is an indication that they belong to me. Now, why circumcision? Read that last line. Because God wants you to know you're not like the other nations, Christians. You're not like the world. You don't believe that your fruitfulness comes from you or from some other entity. It comes from almighty God. God. And so God was reminding the head of the household, you are fruitful because you have covenanted with me. And every time you look at your fruitful organ, you will know that I am the one that gives you children to fill the Think about this. Yes. And so the story of Abraham is about his family. And you see the rest of Genesis dedicated to this one man and his family. What do I mean by that? About Abraham has a son. He calls his name Isaac. And Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob, that are twins. Esau being the oldest. Jacob lies to his, to his father and steals his brother's birthright and, and inheritance. And all of this goes on. And then from Jacob, you have the 12 sons of Jacob and you have two major themes in the story of Abraham's family becoming a nation. You want to know what those themes are? They're Abraham and his family keep messing up and keep failing, but God remains faithful. What is God trying to get across? God is trying to get across is that his covenant with you doesn't just depend on your faithfulness. It depends on his goodness, his faithfulness, his holiness, his perfection. He has an everlasting love and he loves you. You just have to accept it. 
And so why am I saying this? Because the enemy loves to come and tell you, you've messed up. It's over. It's nothing you can do about it. It's done. God's turned his back on you. Can I tell you, it's never been about you. It's always been about God. That's why the prophet says... That's why the prophet says salvation is holy and completely of God. You can't keep your salvation. You can't earn your salvation. All you can do is receive it and be grateful for it. Amen. Be grateful for it. And so this is what this whole Old Testament is about. Reminding you that even when you fail, God is good. And so you see Abraham fail and you see Isaac fail and you see they don't walk blamelessly before the Lord. Abraham lies about his, about his wife, not once, but twice. You see Jacob lies to his father, tricks his brother. You see Jacob marrying multiple wives, but he only really loves one. And this causes all kinds of family dynamics and jealousy where the brothers turn on the one brother and they sell him into slavery. And so the book ends with this horrible thing that brothers do to one another. The book ends with him being in slavery and then in prison, but God is faithful to rise him up and redeem. Redeem the failure. And this is the final refrain from Genesis. What you meant for evil, God used for good. This is also restated in the New Testament in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. For God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So God can redeem. But before we flip the page... Because Genesis leaves us with all of these promises and covenants kind of unfulfilled. And it begs you to flip the page. But before we flip the page, let's flip the page back one and go to chapter 49. Chapter 49 introduces a very remarkable promise given by the Holy Spirit through Jacob, his, the father, over his 12 sons. And he's blessing his sons, but he stops at Judah, and he gives Judah a very special blessing, a blessing that ultimately Messiah, and that they would come through him, and that there would be a great king and kingdom established through his lineage. Judah. Can I tell you who comes from the line of Judah? Well, before we get to that, we know that Abraham's covenant didn't go so well on Abraham's side. And it's not long before his family is enslaved in Egypt. And then God makes another covenant. This is the third covenant with his entire nation. And he calls them Israel. Israel. And so God says, keep my covenant and you shall be to me a kingdom. I keep, I keep reminding you of that because this is what God has wanted from day one. To bless the entire world, not just a group of people. The entire world. And you shall be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation that will introduce the world to my goodness and my love. 
God says, I will rule over you, but the nation of Israel rejects God and decides, Lord, we wanna be like other nations. I know you said you would be our king, but instead we want an earthly king. We want a human king. God says, you don't want a human king. They're gonna do you wrong. They're gonna enslave you. They're gonna tax you. They're gonna mistreat you. You want me to love you. I am capable of loving you, but they say no. And they head down this road. And God says, in that case, I will raise up a king with a heart after mine. And he will be from the line of Judah, as I have already proclaimed in Genesis 49, and his name shall be David. And so you have the Davidic covenant. Now, this is a very interesting covenant agreement, uh, 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 relationship of honor and love that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. Now, this is very, very interesting. I need you to pay very, very close attention. Because here is where Jesus is introduced explicitly. And we're headed towards Jesus with all of these covenants because ultimately God wants to reestablish relationship. And he's showing you that no matter how many times he tries in human form, it cannot be done. It needs to be himself come in the flesh. But this is what I need you to understand. This covenant has a double part. And it's beautifully written where God is talking about two things at once. He's talking about Solomon and he's talking about Jesus. Now read this with me. The Lord declares to you, David, the Lord himself will make a house for you. Now this is interesting because when I first read this, I thought, well, a house means he will establish his family but this is not what they've been talking about. What they've been talking about is David building the temple for the Lord. And, and Samuel, I mean, excuse me, Nathan says, you're not gonna be the one to build it. You can start. And God gives you the, 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 the desire of your heart to begin the process and to partner with your son, but your son will ultimately build the temple. But here God is saying, I'm gonna build you a temple. Yeah. Keep that in mind as we go on. Keep that in mind. I'm going to build you a house. I know you want to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. When your time comes, you will rest with your ancestors. I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body or your lineage, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Now I'm gonna build you a house and he's gonna build me a house. What, what, what are we talking about here? Stay with me on this. For my name. Um, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows of mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed Saul from, uh, as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. Now, so this is what God is doing. I want you to consider what Paul says when he talks about the first Adam and the second Adam. God does this often. He shows what was impossible in human terms is more than possible with God. 
And he's saying, what your physical son will not be able to do, my son that I will use to come through your line, from the, but he will be from the seed of heaven. He will be God in the flesh will do what Solomon was not able to do. See, Solomon's kingdom comes to an end, but Jesus's will never come to an end. Solomon did wrong and God corrected him. Jesus did no wrong, but bore our sins so that we would not have to be ultimately punished. God is saying, I will build you a house and then you will be uh, in the, I will build you a house and you will build me a house. He's talking about, watch this, John chapter 14 verse 20 says, on that day you will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. What God is literally saying here, Jesus Christ will be the temple by which you enter into true relationship with me. I don't want just a physical temple. That's to point to the ultimate temple, which would be Jesus. This is why the Pharisees couldn't stand Jesus because he said, you see that temple? Destroy it and in three days I will build it back. Why? You put me in the ground, I will rise up in three days. I am the temple by which you enter into the holiest of holiest and you can have forgiveness of your sins and have real relationship with God the Father. But this is also what he said. Not only are you in me, but I am in you. How? The temple of God is in you and Jesus will indwell you. And this is the prophecy right here. You say, so what happens? So throughout the remainder of the Old Testament, you have the prophets and the writers of Old Testament scripture and the poets insisting that God will reestablish his covenant, the covenant that was broken with Noah, the covenant that was broken through because of Abraham's not being blameless, the covenant that was broken because of Israel and their sins and David's lineage that fell apart in the earthly terms, but God would reestablish by being faithful to David and one would come from his line, and that's why the New Testament, the new covenant that they kept insisting upon starts with the lineage of Jesus. And Jesus steps onto the scene, and he says, I am the new covenant. And he begins to preach. He starts with a explaining what the kingdom is all about. He talks about the kingdom being light and the kingdom being salt. He talks about the way. He talks about truly, truly loving God, not just on the outside, but on the inside. And he begins to heal people and people start to gather. And there's what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Some people say that he preached it at once. Others say that he preached it over a period of some time that he would go into the Golan Heights and there in the hills, the beautiful soft mountain hills, he would have natural, a natural amphitheater and he would preach. And one day as he was coming down from those hills, something remarkable happened that touched my heart and I've never been the same again. There was a man that approached Jesus and he came out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, he began to cry out to him. As a rabbi, he began to cry out to him. There was only one problem. He was a leper. And I want you to read with me in the book of Leviticus what the Bible says about lepers. 
So the Bible says anyone with such a disease, a defiling disease, must wear tattered clothes, must be worn, wear torn clothes, must be uncapped and not wear a tunic, but instead announce to the world, I am less than. You must have your hair uncapped and you must look like a bum on the street. Because in fact, that's exactly what you will be. In fact, because of this dreadful disease from where there is no cure and it spreads throughout the entire community and it, it, and it is something to be dreaded, people would be fearful. It kind of reminds me of when I cough. People are like, do you have, do you have it? No, I had it. Oh, you might still have it. You know, but this was even worse than that. And look at the last line of that. They must live alone. That means you're put outside the city, outside the protection of the community, outside the protection of the wall, and you must live by yourself. What a depressing. What a situation that strips you of all your dignity, of all your love, of all your closeness. No longer fathers to see your daughters and to hug them, to love them. Your wives, wives, you won't hug and love your children. You won't hug and love your husband. You won't know the caress of anyone that you've ever cared for. No more barbecues, no more anything. Your life has changed forever. And in this man's desperate state, he comes to find Jesus and he begins to cry out to Jesus. Why? Because he heard that Jesus is the one that can heal him. In his desperate state, he has nowhere else to go. He is in a place of utter desperation. Have you ever been there? I have. And he cried out to Jesus, read with me. Read with me. Matthew chapter eight, verse one. And when Jesus came down the mountainside with large crowds following him, a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me. And so I want you to think about what's going on. This crowd knows he shouldn't be there. And so immediately, what do you think the crowd reacts like? They get angry, they get upset, they want to push him away, but they won't dare touch him. And so they're all, they're all just reviling him. What are some of the disciples who were just starting out with Jesus and still don't understand it all? They might have drawn their swords and said, you come any closer, we'll kill you. And his desperation, he's literally on his knees saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can change my life. This is where we are prior to having a relationship with Jesus. We have had our, our relationship with Almighty God completely severed because of an awful, dreadful condition called sin that encompasses all of us, changes our appearance and changes our heart and completely removes us from any love. only difference is some recognize it, others don't. This man recognized it and he's on his knees. Now I want you to think about something with me because when I read the New Testament, I see Jesus healing with a word. I see heal Jesus even heals counties over with a word. He doesn't have to touch him. But what do you see Jesus do? 
religiosity be darned. Legalism be darned. What will they say about him? Who cares? They will call him unclean. This is like a pastor finishing his message, stepping out front, grabbing a a, a shot of tequila and lighting up a cigarette and watching his members go by. Jesus is saying, I don't care what you think about the outside. I am here to save you on the inside. And so Jesus stoops down. Listen to me. He's on his knees, this man. Jesus also gets on his knees. And the Bible says he touches him and he says, I am willing. Now he could have said, I am willing. Be healed. Stand up. Can I tell you, Jesus is the new covenant. He is the perfect image of God. We were called to be the image of God. We failed. He is the perfect image of God. What Adam couldn't do, the second Adam, the second perfect image of God comes to do what the first Adam could not do, the Bible says. And he shows the perfect love of the Father. Why? Because he stoops down. He doesn't just stoop down from here to there. He stoops down from there all the way to here. And he says, I'm not just going to stand on my throne or sit at my throne and say, be healed. I love you, human race. Be good. Let's enter into relationship. He comes down to earth and he says, I love you this much. I love you this much as he hangs on a cross. God loves you. And what you couldn't do, he did. Miss Rosa, you can cough. You can cough. I saw you were trying to hold it back. I know how you feel. He loves you. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to have communion. 